Hello everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Gaming in the Wild, a video games podcast about games from the artistic, creative side of the tracks, from indie to AAA. My name's John, I'm your host, I'm recording on Friday the 19th of May, out in Reykjavik, Iceland, where we are in the middle of a three-day, seemingly endless rainstorm. So the wind is howling outside, and the rain is smashing down and there are people outside screaming and running for shelter. Um, I'm inside, I've got the curtains drawn to try and keep some of that noise out. Um, I hope it doesn't bother you. Um, It's been a good week though. Um, It's been the week, of course, of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom's release. Um, I've been playing that game a lot. Um, I've got a lot to talk about, and I'm very excited about this game. I've been very excited about it for a while, as a lot of people have. Um, Breath of the Wild was a very special game to me, Um, This podcast, if you're a first-time listener, you haven't heard this story before, is partially named after Breath of the Wild. Um, After a break from gaming a few years ago, I got back into gaming via Zelda Breath of the Wild. Um, That game occupies a very special and personal place in my heart and saw me through a bit of a rough time in life. Um, I think that these games have a very special quality to them, and so I was very overjoyed that Tears of the Kingdom was finally here. It's like Christmas for gamers, really, right? It's like we're feasting right now. This is the peak um, of what video games can be in some ways. Um, And so it was with some relief and an awful lot of joy, actually, that I dipped into Tears of the Kingdom for the first time and, and started playing the game that we've all been waiting for for several years now. And the question of how to cover a game this big and this varied Obviously, it's not the kind of game where you can do a little quick capsule review and encompass everything that you're going to experience in this game and all of the things that have been done in this game easily. This is a sprawling game. It's a vast game. It has many layers to it, uh, more so even than the most complex open world games. I feel like this is a dense, packed game with a lot of systems, a lot going on. Um, And so I thought that the way that I would start talking about Tears of the Kingdom is just to run through some of the basics about it, to talk about the story setup, all of which happens in the first 10 minutes of the game. There were many outstanding questions about this from the trailers that we saw. You know, how does Link have this um, this strange arm? Um, what is happening in the story at the start of this game? How did we arrive at this point in Hyrule and uh, this, this story moment in the Zelda universe? So I'm going to talk through a little bit of that. Um, Much like Breath of the Wild, this game has an opening area that's very impressive that teaches you a little bit about the start of the game and starts you on the trail of learning the mechanics of the game. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that opening area. So if you've played up until Landfall, then uh, you'll be safe listening to that part. And then towards the back end of the podcast, I'm going to talk a little bit about some things that I would consider to be vaguely spoilery. And I'm not talking um, endgame spoilers, I'm not talking plot twists, but Tears of the Kingdom, more than almost any other game that I can think of, is a game in which the enjoyment rests in discovery. 
in many, many small moments of discovery of um, how the mechanics of the game can be employed, what this game is, is doing, um, little puzzles that ask the player to figure things out and to be creative. People have talked a lot about the creativity that this game engenders in how you use the tools that you were given and that sort of thing. Um, so I'm going to try and talk about Tears of the Kingdom in a way that I'd say that this podcast is maybe aimed at someone that has played 10 to 15 hours of the the game so far and so is comfortable hearing about some of those things. Everything that could be considered a spoiler, just little reveals about the things that you are doing in this game, the activities, the various open world activities that you are doing and how you start to unwrap this puzzle and untangle these threads, just how the game is set up. But I'm going to try and be generous with spoilers. I'm going to try and uh, tell you if we're approaching anything that I think it would be nice for you to discover for yourself. And I have to say, I've been very happy with the things that I've listened to. I listen to a lot of video game shows. I listen every week to a bit of Easy Allies, a really good YouTube channel, uh, The Min Max Show. I listen to a game reviews show and conversation show and topic-based show and the No Clip podcast. And all of them have fully recognized that this is a very spoilable game in quite an unusual way. So if you have not played this game at all, um, and would like to keep it fresh for the future, maybe come back to this episode at a later date. If you're playing Tears of the Kingdom now, if you've started the journey, then um, I'm happy that you're here, and I hope that you enjoy my thoughts about the, the opening hours of this epic game. But before we launch into the review, or the uh, the opening review, I imagine there'll be more episodes about this game, um, let me mention briefly, this is a patron-supported show. I'd like to say a big thank you to this month's new patrons, Simon and Julia, um, if you are a patron of this show, you support the podcast. I use the money to upgrade gear, make the podcast sound better, pay for the URL, all of that kind of stuff, associated costs of making a podcast. Um, you get bonus episodes. There are nine currently, and I have new ones in the works. You get an invite to our Discord server, where other patrons of the show gather and talk about games, share screenshots, share recommendations, sale picks, play word games, and just have fun and talk about games every day. It's a really lovely place to come and a lovely place to hang out. So if you're interested in becoming a patron of the show, then thank you very much. And you can do so at patreon.com slash gaming in the wild. And I will put a link to that in the show notes. And with that said, let's move on and talk about this wonderful game, The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. So, Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, it came out on May the 12th of this year, after several delays, um, it finally came out. Um, it's a pretty bug-free game, I think I've, I've not encountered much, I think I've seen one shadow pop in like 15 hours of gameplay, there is hardly anything wrong with this game. It's made and published by Nintendo, of course. It is directed by Hidemaro Fujibayashi who has directed seven Zelda games to date, including the Oracles games, the Minish Cap or Minish Cap, Skyward Sword, and of course, Breath of the Wild. It is produced by Eiji Awanuma, who has produced every Zelda game since 1998, and whose first Zelda game that he produced was the Ocarina of Time. Um, it's been incredibly well received, you've probably noticed. Um, it has a Metacritic score of 96. Uh, just one mark below Breath of the Wild, and it has somewhat famously become the most well-reviewed game ever in the history of Open Critic, scoring 97 
that places it joint top with Super Mario Odyssey, and that is directly above games like Red Dead Redemption 2, Elden Ring, God of War 2018, etc. Um, How Long to Beat has some scores in there already, so some people are saying they've beaten this game in the week of release. It looks like 50 hours is the going rate if you beeline the game. It has 69 for extras and 120 hours for completionists, although I have to say I'm a little skeptical of um, the completionists. I think you would have to be a speedrunner to um, get through this game, to find all the Koroks, to do all of the little optional extras. Um, And 120 hours in one week is an improbable amount of time. Maybe we have some critics who've had a little longer with it there, but, you know, take that take that with a grain of salt. Um, there is an article in The Verge saying that their reviewer beat it in 43 hours, but I only think that you would hit those kind of times if you were rushing through the game, and this is not the kind of game that you want to rush. This is the kind of game that you would like to savour. Um, and Nintendo described this game like this. Explore the vast lands and skies of Hyrule. An epic adventure awaits as you decide your own path through the sprawling landscapes of Hyrule and the mysterious islands floating above. Can you harness the power of Link's new abilities to fight back against the malevolent forces that threaten the kingdom? And my take on this one is that Tears of the Kingdom is Nintendo's impossible sequel. How do you follow up the best game of all time? Their answer was to expand it in all directions. Tears of the Kingdom builds on the miraculous foundations of Breath of the Wild, soaring high and plunging deep, creating an astounding adventure in which the possibilities stretch as far as the horizon. So I said in the in the, the build-up there that I think this game expands on Breath of the Wild in all directions. It's going to be a recurring theme throughout this, just comparing it to the game um, on which it is based. It is a very direct sequel, It reuses a lot of what made Breath of the Wild great, but it adapts things, it evolves things, um, it changes things up, it adds an awful lot, and it somehow manages to push the bar of quality um, higher than a game that I believe is nigh on perfect. I know people have their own beef with various aspects of Breath of the Wild. I think that the, the small things like the weapon durability um, and the focus on open exploration of wide areas um, in which you were just running around and taking it all in, I I don't mind them. I mean, I think that the open world formula of Breath of the Wild as a Zelda game um, was one of its strengths. It was the main strength of the game. Um, I've had lots of conversations with this in the past about where Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom, uh, by extension, fit into the identity of the Zelda series. Um, And it's interesting talking to people about this. Some people, when they think of Zelda, think of puzzle dungeons, uh, bombing walls, small keys and big keys, um, dungeons that run five floors deep with mini-bosses and bosses. Um, And that's what they associate with Zelda. That was never the case for me. Uh, When I think of Zelda, when I think of my roots with the Zelda series, when I think of A Link to the Past, um, which was the first game that truly made me fall in love with Nintendo, I think about Hyrule Field. I think of chopping bushes and finding bees and fairies, jumping down wells to find strange things below, um, of running through different biomes, of getting skills that would allow me to pull up rocks and see new areas, climbing mountains, talking to everyone in Hyrule Village. So to me, the overworld and Hyrule Field and Kakariko Village and all of those uh, places of Zora and the mountains, Death Mountain and all of that open 
world is what initially drew me to the series. It was a feeling of broad adventure, of fresh air, um, and childlike wonder that is, is what made Zelda special to me in the first place. And I think that Breath of the Wild is, in some ways, the ultimate um, expression of that feeling that Zelda gives me, um, of the childlike wonder and wide horizons and wild fantasy adventure. It's also wholesome, it's childlike, it's innocent um, and somewhat magical. And everything from the character design to the the somewhat slender mythos that surrounds those games. They are, they're not story forward, you know, the early Zelda games. They are pretty straight up fantasy adventures, but Something about that experience of being Link, a child who wakes up on a stormy night, heading out into the world, being swept up in huge events, uh, life or death, make or break events that affect realms and all of that sort of stuff, mythic, legendary events, um, is what got my attention. Um, and I think that I may be in a minority about this, I, but I may not. I think that I know that there are other people who think the same way as I do, but the this current expression of what Zelda is, is... Um, somewhat magical to me. Um, I feel very lucky that the the series happened to be taken in the direction that I loved the most and to be extended in the direction I personally prefer. Um, I will say that I think Tears of the Kingdom is a more complete Zelda game if you're looking at the history of, of what the, the series has offered up until now. Um, and I think that people are going to be happy with what they find. I do hope that some of those um, Zelda fans who felt a little lost by Breath of the Wild or lost in Breath of the Wild are happier and feel like they found Zelda again in, uh, in Tears of the Kingdom. So I'm going to start by running through um, a little bit of what the story setup is in this game. All of this happens in the first 10 minutes. Some of it we have seen already in trailers. Um, so at the start of this game, Zelda and Link are together and they are in the basement, the caverns that lie beneath Hyrule Castle. They're searching for the gloom. Um, this is a kind of a corruption. It's like a goopy red classic video game corruption that is seeping upwards through the foundations of Hyrule Castle. It is poisoning the land above and it is making people tired and making them sick. Um, and so you start with Zelda's holding a flaming torch. You're walking alongside her um, and you descend into the caverns that lie beneath um, and Zelda finds some hieroglyphics down here. She's going down further than she's ever been before beneath the castle. And she finds a series of hieroglyphic uh, tableaus that evidence a past civilization called the Zonai. She's very excited about this. I love the modern incarnation of Zelda as this curious, intrepid, scientifically minded archaeologist slash, slash historian who has the weight of Hyrule on her shoulders as a young princess who is trying to live up to everything that she is expected to be, who is trying to find out who she is and to seize her own power. Zelda has become a more interesting character over time, um, and I really like this incarnation of her. We see her using her Sheikah slate to snap pictures of these hieroglyphs. Um, she's very excited about them. You continue further down. Um, and the game here gets a, a very foreboding atmosphere that took me a little bit by surprise. If we think back to that famous opening of Breath of the Wild, where Link opens in a deep chamber, and he opens as if from hypersleep. He's been sealed away. He is uh, naked. He is 
thin. Uh, time has passed and you walk out of the cave and you see that sweeping vista before you. Um, it's one of the great video game moments where you see all of Hyrule. Um, it's that famous, if you see it, you can go there feeling. Um, this game does things a little differently. So you're going down beneath Hyrule Castle, deeper into the gloom. The darkness is coming at you. The music is strange and kind of warped. Zelda's flame is flickering. Um, and as you get further down, you come into a cavern where there is a desiccated zombie, a grey body, lying splayed dramatically backwards on an altar. Um, this disembodied glowing arm is pressed onto the chest of this zombie, containing it somehow, it seems. As you get down there, the arm falls, and it seems like some kind of spell is broken. The zombie kind of twitches to life. It gets up, it stares at you, it points at you, it speaks to Link and Zelda, it seems to know who they are. It unleashes a dramatic torrent of gloom, these tendrils of toxic red goop that wrap around Link, burn his arm, and shatters the Master Sword, the famous Master Sword of, of Zelda. Uh, the ground crumbles, and Zelda falls into a chasm and vanishes. Link loses consciousness. This is a pretty powerfully creepy introduction to the game. Um, it's dark, it's strange. Uh, the demon's spasmodic movements as it twitches up to life are jerky and inhuman. Um, it's quite a horrible looking thing, and the gloom itself is this spray of fast-moving awfulness. Um, this took me by surprise. It, it was a little bit chilling. It's a really, really cool, really scary intro. Um, and so that's the story setup of this. Um, the next time we see Link, he is waking up in a cave again, um, like the start of Breath of the Wild. He is greeted by this noble-seeming spirit who is sitting at his side, who it seems has nursed him back to health. Um, he tells Link that he had to transplant an arm onto him in order to save his life. Um, his new arm is tattooed and marked and black. It has a, a magical kind of glow to it. It has these long nails. This is the Ultra Hand. Um, perhaps it's the arm that was keeping the demon at bay. I, I might have missed a little beat there. Maybe that's the arm that is on him now. But it certainly lends him special abilities to use um, a form of telekinesis, a little bit like the magnetism from uh, Breath of the Wild, but now it works on anything that is loose. It's a bit like using the Force, um, and that's the source of Link's new powers. Um, Link, with his new spirit friend, uh, comes out, and we see that he is on the famous Sky Islands that are on the cover of the game, um, that we've seen in all of the trailers of the game, um, and this is where the game really begins. It's such a good intro. It is much more dramatic than Breath of the Wild. There is much more story in it. It's meaty, like there is an initial mystery, um, what is the gloom? What, what is this zombie? Um, who is this uh, figure that Link is now dealing with? This this um, blue glowing figure who has these long ears, like rabbit ears almost, that stick out horizontally. They're hanging with ornate jewelry, and the thing has a quiet, regal, knowing and wise kind of presence. And so straight away, we have a lot to go on here. Um, but the, the, real, the real wonder of this section is after all of this drama in the opening minutes of the game, you come out, you look out before you, the music trills, the golden light is falling over the Sky Islands. It's an echo of Breath of the Wild, but also a new beginning. And this was a moment that was everything that I wanted it to be. 
um, which is saying quite a lot given how much I've been looking forward to this and the uh, the fondness and nostalgia um, that I have for my, my wondrous time with Breath of the Wild. Um, when you first come out above the Sky Islands, it's just spectacular. Um, the color of the light is very different to anything I saw in Breath of the Wild. You are higher, the shadows feel longer. Um, the color of the sunlight is this, this mellifluous gold um, this beautiful music that we're listening to right now, um, I can't tell you what it is. It sounds almost accordion and almost woodwind. So minimalistic, so much space in it. It seems to speak to the the space that you have to explore and just the sense of space and sky um, that is in this game. Um, there is a beautiful sound to this area too, and to this game generally. The breathing of the wind, the rustling of the trees. It's just quite a gorgeous experience. It's like being bathed in that unique kind of beauty that really made Breath of the Wild stand out, really made that game sing. Um, and I have to say, I think this is what sets these modern Zelda games apart from many other games, be it Zelda, be it Nintendo, be it other open world games, of which there are many. There seems to be a sense of quietude and a sense of wonder um, and a sense of reverence in these games for nature, um, for, the, for the source material too. This is a work that is full of love and you can really feel that um, other, other games, of course, do an amazing job of depicting nature, the, the majesty of nature. You know, um, Red Dead Redemption 2's realistic American outback feels like a place in history and time. Um, Horizon's stunning, colourful, lush, uh, filled worlds with so much undergrowth and vines and waterfalls and gushing streams and animals scampering across the path and flies swirling in the air. But Zelda just does something else. Um, and it's just kind of hard to describe, hard to put your finger on exactly. Um, but that sense of quietude, it's, it's peaceful. There is a peace to this game. Even with the combat and the corruption and the fantasy drama, um, this world breathes. There is a sense of vast space. Um, the light, the sound, the bird song that comes from all around you. Um, the wind, the water, the rustling. It's immersive um, and reverent somehow in a way that only these games really managed to muster, in my opinion. And I would like to say a few words about the music of this game. Um, like everything in this game, it has been built on the foundations of Breath of the Wild. Uh, some of the same music from Breath of the Wild is used, especially down in Hyrule, which is like a very strong echo of the last game. But this game has new areas. We are in one of them at the start of it. We're in the Sky Islands and we get new themes up here. There is a new palette of sound in the game that really expands the vocabulary, the, the musical vocabulary of the last game. Um, the shrines are repeated in this game. They are a little different, they are improved. Um, and in the shrines, we get these processed choral sounds and very organic sounds like wood blocks and chimes. In the Sky Islands, we get this sighing, minimalist woodwind and accordion, or accordion rather. This is some absolutely top tier video game music, in my opinion. Um, in the golden light of the Sky Realm, hearing the new music that the game has, entering a shrine for the first time and hearing that sound palette creates a new feel for the new areas. Um, and it is gorgeous, it is calming, it is serene, um, it's just lovely, and it, it tells you what this game is all about.
And it turns out that, like in Breath of the Wild, which had the amazing Great Plateau, which was like a little taster of all of the things that Breath of the Wild was going to have, um, it has been described as a tutorial area. I think that's a little unfair. I think that these are more than just a tutorial zone. They are a self-contained um, part of the game that eases you in. This isn't a simple tutorial that just shows you buttons and teaches you mechanics. This is rather a space to explore that is like a little starter course for the, the main meal that is still to come. Um, and these Sky Islands are very much like that. Um, the Temple of Time is up here. Your spirit companion points you towards it. Um, and down you go. Um, you meet some robots, some really interesting little robots that are in this game called Constructs. They have little glowing eyes and they will talk to you. They are like these sad gardeners that are lost in time tending a kingdom that is barely there anymore. Um, and I love that sense of melancholy that these little guys have as you first meet them, as you are walking around up here. Um, you can, of course, pick things up. You find start finding acorns and apples and herbs. You find sticks that you can pick up. And the collectathon aspect of these games is really fun to me, and it starts straight away. There always seems to be a well-placed little fruit or a, a little thing that you can find anywhere that you can look. So everywhere that you are walking, you're feeling rewarded. You're feeling small moments of discovery. Even the smallest, finding an acorn in a game somehow works in this. It, it starts to bring that sense of curiosity and exploration and wonder at what is around you and makes you feel connected to the place that you're in, in the most wonderful way. And at the Temple of Time, you realize that you need to get some more power. You need to fill your, your new arm, which has been seemingly stitched onto you. Um, there is a bangle around it, so you cannot see the join, but you do see the marks and the tattoos, and you do see that it is different to the rest of Link's physique. Um, so your spirit companion, uh, called Rauru, uh, tells you to go forth and to find the shrines in this little island archipelago, this little sky archipelago. Um, and shrines are back in this game. I liked the shrines in Breath of the Wild, so I'm happy to see them return. These are little structures. Uh, this time they have a little spin of green light above them, like a spiral. You can see them from quite far away. You are taught how to spot them. You are taught how to mark them on your map if you want to. Um, and you're sent to go and find them. Um, and this is a little taster of what's to come. It's a little obstacle course. Um, you will meet more constructs that will fill you in on, a, on where you are, or start to fill you in on the mystery. Um, and there are a few of those famous physics puzzles that really set this game apart from the last one. Um, and as you're wandering through this game, I think it's a quite a graceful introduction to some of these early mechanics of manipulating objects, combining objects in new ways. Um, and each shrine that you get to, you will get one of the beginner skills of the game, um, one of which is Ascend. This is a new uh, mechanic for heading upwards through solid surfaces to come out on top. Uh, Fuse, which allows you to join items onto your weapons. If you want to put a boulder on a sword, then you can do that, and you then have a rock sword that hits like a boulder, like a blunt object, um, and has more power than before. Um, you're introduced to the concept of diving, jumping off tall things, skydiving into water, and avoiding fall damage. You're introduced to the idea of Zonai charges. Uh, Link now has a little battery bar, like an old Nokia phone, which can power machines for a set time. And you're introduced to the Ultra Hand, which can pick things up, anything that is loose, rocks, boulders, pebbles, boards, planks. The world is littered with things that you can pick up. 
you can combine them with this uh, ingenious ultra hand mechanic uh, and build things out of them. So there is this new sandbox physics uh, mechanic that is central to what sets Tears of the Kingdom apart. It's pretty interesting to me that Nintendo chose to go in this direction here. Um, it seems that they have seen some of those amazing videos of Breath of the Wild where people use metal weapons, lay them in a row, and conduct electricity, where they take the, the simple physics system of Breath of the Wild and they used it in the most creative and unusual ways. This is one of the reasons that Breath of the Wild has lived on as long as it have, has, is that the game somehow allows for this vast range of possible actions that far outstrips the intended actions, the intended outcomes. People have solved puzzles in ways that are like cryptic crossword clues backwards, like they've taken the, the problem and turned it into the most unusual answer. Um, Nintendo have clearly been impressed by this. I also think that Nintendo is a company that has always catered towards a young audience. Um, Shigeru Miyamoto, Miyamoto is on the record as talking about wonder, childlike wonder, um, childlike enjoyment and innocence as qualities that he likes his game to have. In fact, the original Zelda game um, was inspired by him walking into a cave and feeling like he was somewhere miraculous and different to where he was before and that sense of adventure. Um, and I think that if you look at what kids are playing today, if you look at Minecraft, if you look at Fortnite creative mode, if you look at all of these building games, look at Roblox where they're just putting little cubes together and building things out of voxels, um, then you can see that the zeitgeist of where gaming is for children and for young people has evolved over time. And so I, I think that in the back of my mind, I, I wonder if this is a little response to those combined elements, to uh, being impressed by how far people took the mechanics of Breath of the Wild in their own emergent gameplay, and to looking to where the gaming zeitgeist is for young people, and putting those things together and bringing them all into a Zelda game. So it's a Zelda game that builds on the Zelda of the past, but it's also a Zelda game that looks to the zeitgeist and draws on the possibilities that Breath of the Wild first introduced. And the will of players to use those systems in unusual ways has now been foregrounded and brought to the front of this one. And I am going to talk now about the Ultra Hand mechanic. So if you don't want to know about Link's new abilities, if you have not played this game and want to go in fresh, now is the time to tune out. If you're playing the game, I'm just going to run through some basics here. So the way that it works is that you hold down a button, um, the L1 button, um, that brings up a little wheel of abilities. You select the ability you want, and then you snap into it. If it is Ultra Hand, um, you will get this uh, red sheen across the screen, um, and through that sheen, items that are manipulable are bright and highlighted. So it's like a filter that shows you what you need to see, one amongst many pieces of very elegant design in this game. Um, if it's a rock, you can pick up that rock. If it is near another rock, if you hold it near that rock, you will see a narrow strand of glue appear between the two. If you then let go, they will snap together. Um, you can also rotate the thing that you are holding. If you are holding a flat square board um, and you have another one nearby, you can join them at 90 degrees. You can uh, rotate objects on the X and Y axis in, in 3D space, um, and you can glue things together. There is a snapping mechanic, so they approximate what you're trying to get to, and they snap together items. Um, this is taught to you very well. I think when you first come to your first obstacle after the first shrine, you have to cross a lake. Um, there are some logs lying around. Uh, a few of them have already been glued together. There are a couple of fans lying around. Um, and you 
you can intuit from the shrapnel that is around you at many points in this game when new devices are introduced to you you will see half-built devices lying around as if they have fallen from the sky or been unearthed like antiques uh, from the Zonai civilization but you can yourself then finish a machine that is half finished you can adapt it you can try out a different version of it you can combine different things so in that first puzzle you finish the hovercraft you get the the logs you glue them together you put a fan on the back um the fan is a Zonai device, of which there are many in this game. Um, I have found tens of them, and I'm, I'm not close to finding them all, I think. You can glue that fan onto the back. If you get onto the, the little boat that you've made, which is now bobbing in the water, if you've dropped it there, you hit the fan, it switches on. Link's battery starts to go down, his Zonai charge. Um, but the fan will push you forward using the physics system of the game. Um, the boat will bob awkwardly across the waves, and you've done it you've gotten to the other side. Um, this is something that Nintendo showed off. It's the first open-world instance of uh, using the new ultra-hand mechanic, gluing things together, making contraptions. It's the simplest one. Um, they showed it in the gameplay trailer and so forth. Um, the next thing that you do, having crossed that that um, that lake, is to go into a mine where there are more constructs. They are mining. They explain to you that zonalite is a charged material that is mined, and that it can be processed into these uh, zonai charges, that charges can be used to replenish your battery, and so forth. So there's a new mechanic here about powering devices and zonai machinery. You'll find bits of it all over the world, and you can combine it with logs, with uh, natural materials, with boards, uh, modern high-raw materials, these medieval wooden things, um, but these zonai contraptions, such as fans and other and wheels and other types of machinery that look like it's from the modern world, like a fantasy sci-fi powered hybrid uh, type of machinery. You can use your ultra hand to glue these things together. Um, the next puzzle that you find is you come to the end of the mine and there is a pair of rails uh, going through the mine, like a minecart rail, and then it goes out of the cave and out through blank space through the sky to another island. Um, you can intuit that you are supposed to use a minecart to get across, but it goes uphill, so you have to put a fan on the minecart. Um, you can propel yourself across and you feel clever. You feel like you're getting it. Um, I loved the grace of all of this, that I was being slowly, 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 slowly warmed up to what these mechanics can do. And then you hit your first puzzle. You try and use a minecart again, or at least I did, um, and you quickly find out that one of the rails is broken. The cart tumbles off. You fall down. Link does his little scream and respawns. Uh, and so you're thinking, well, shit, how do I get across there now? Do I have to attach something to the rail? Um, do I have to find another way? Uh, you look around and you see that there are hooks lying around you, metal hooks with a meter-long uh, stem. Um, so you can intuit from that that if you stick a, a hook into a minecart and hang it from the rail, we're going downhill this time. Uh, you hop into that minecart and use it like a cable car and slide down to the next island. Um, and you created a cable car and you feel like a genius. So even in this first area, there are very gentle puzzles with the solutions just laying around you in this haphazard way, as if it's not, you know, we're not telling you what to do here, but we're just, uh, just giving you a couple of ingredients. It's a really lovely feeling of being kind of cradled um, and pushed forward in the most gentle way, like a Nintendo is like the parent behind you and you are the child riding a bike for the first time and they are just pushing you and saying they haven't let go. And it's like that moment Nintendo is starting to push you through Zelda and teach you what you can do in a way that feels like it's all you. 
Um, and so as you move through these areas, you find the first Zonai machines, the wood, crates, rocks. You find out you can chop trees and you'll get a log. You'll find metal crates and wooden crates all strewn around, starting to invite experimentation. Um, you can play with them, you can fiddle with them. I think a lot of people, mileage may vary on this. It depends if you're the kind of gamer that just wants to get through it, get to the next shrine, get to your objective. Or if you are the kind of gamer for whom sandbox is where the fun is at, I think both kinds of gamers can enjoy this. Um, and I certainly did too. I really enjoyed combining all of this stuff and getting into little crazy adventures and writing my own story as I crossed the Sky Islands. And I have really enjoyed hearing about other people's adventures during this opening area because people have approached this that I've spoken to in so many different ways. Um, I've heard about people who went the, the wrong way in inverted commas around this area, who went clockwise rather than anti-clockwise and kind of misread the queue or just saw a different queue or took their own journey. Um, and they did the hardest part first because what you're really doing here as you are ascending this, this series of islands is that you're going to a couple of shrines, puzzle shrines, where you're picking up your new abilities one by one. Um, you're powering up your arms so that you can open the doors of the Temple of Time. And the highest shrine is on a snow cap um, above some ice walls. Um, and this is a really interesting place to get to in the game. You've used your little minecarts, you've used a little raft, but now you have to scale an ice wall. Uh, Link can't climb it, it's too slippery. Um, and so you have to think. I stopped. I thought, I was like, oh, what am I going to do? I'm going to have to look around and cast around for what I will do. People have approached this in so many different ways. I had a, a crazy comical adventure. So I'm going to tell you how I approached this. First things first, you look around, you see some trees. You think, I can create a climbable pole if I glue together some logs, lean it against this glacier awkwardly, scale it and get up onto the snow. Um, I tried that. Um, I leaned the log. I started to climb it. Gravity took hold, and before I knew it, Link was falling, he, he fell to land, and the log tumbled away. I saw it going down and down and down, far into the depths, falling into the sky, um, and this was my first, my first taste of many tastes of, uh, of failure, of seeing something spiral away from you that you have so painstakingly made. And I had a choice at this point. I was like, should I reload? I can't see any other materials around me that I could use. Um, I thought, no, there must be more ways to do this. There was a lot more material further down. So I ended up taking a cable car back down um, and I found lots and lots of boards lying around. And I thought, well, I could just build these into a huge bridge, maybe even long enough to uh, avoid using cable cars and minecarts altogether. So I glued together every single piece of board that I could find until I had a bridge, a vast, majestic, long bridge that I could hold out in front of me with my force powers, drop over the gap, get back up to the ice cap um, entrance, and then hold it up against the ice cap, scale it and get onto the ice. Somehow, as I was climbing up that too, um, Link's weight affected the physics of it. It slipped against the ice and it fell as well. So my beautiful long board bridge was my pride and joy. I was thinking, this thing is amazing. I'm going to carry it through the whole game. Um, it just fell. It was gone again. And I was like, oh my God, this is now the third time that I'm going to have to try and get onto this ice cap. Uh, but I was determined not to give up at this point. Somewhere far down next to the mines was a, a big rectangular floating platform. It looks like a huge piece of stone, but it has a little zonai glow on it, so you know it's powered. 
Um, you're not supposed to use it for this part of the game, as far as I know. It's just to get you across to another place. Um, so I went all the way down, and I figured out that if I put it between the Sky Islands, I can use the minecart to get back up. I can grab it on the way and pull it with me. So I dragged that thing all the way up to the top, and I ended up using that to get onto the ice. I, th I think it's the most unconventional, silly solution, because I tried the two obvious solutions, and through bad luck or clumsiness, had failed to do it, but there was a third option for me to get up there. So at this point, I was already feeling very invested in the idea of experimentation in a way that I was not perhaps expecting. Um, I got up there and, you know, up on the glacier, you'll, you'll find your first wing. This is a glider that you can use to glide across the air. Um, if you move Link's weight on a glider, you stand on the left wing, the, uh, the floating gliding platform will veer to the left so you can maneuver by walking around on it and Link's weight will make it shift in the air, um, things like that. You'll start to find new things that you can use um, and the possibilities start to really open up. Um, and after you've done all of that, I loved, I loved hearing about everyone's adventure doing this part of the game. Everyone seemed to approach it somewhat the same, somewhat differently. Everyone seems to have a story about it. You glide back down to the time temple. Um, you have the reverse um, ability also, which allows you to reverse the trajectory of an object. For example, a boulder rolling down a hill. You can click reverse on it or rewind or recall, I think it's called actually. And that boulder can be rewound in time to its previous positions up to about 10 or 20 seconds. Um, you use that to climb a water wheel. All of these puzzles are just introductory um, items that allow you to take your new abilities out for a spin. I thought this was an absolutely majestic, absolutely beautiful piece of game design. It was curated, um, it offered a sense of freedom, but it offered an, a sense of experimentation that I think really tells you uh, what Tears of the Kingdom is all about and introduces you in the most wonderful way uh, to what this game is. I will say that there were moments of friction in these opening hours of Tears of the Kingdom. Um, I did find that I had to start thinking differently. Um, for someone that's played over 200 hours of Breath of the Wild, and there are a lot of us out there, and we think, we think a lot in terms of gliding, we think a lot in terms of stamina, we think a lot in terms of slow climbing um, and running across the landscape. And there are better ways to do things now, like the ascendability, um, requires a new way of thinking. And if you've got 200 hours, if you've got muscle memory and just this deep instinct uh, from playing Breath of the Wild to do things in the old way, it can lead to you perhaps not seeing the problem or seeing the solution because you're not yet fluent in the new skills. Um, and the game tries to teach you, but it takes a little more than that. It took me a little more than that. It took me a few tries to really start to see the world through the lens of being able to rewind time to see the world through the realms of being under an object and ascending through it being a more economical way to climb than crawling slowly, huffing up the side as your little climbing link like we were in Breath of the Wild. And that led to some friction in some early shrines um, after this point in the game. And if you combine that with the Zonai machinery, having to build devices, having to build contraptions, having to flex your creative muscles in a different way and look at the game in a different way, I guess we all wanted something that was different to Breath of the Wild in some significant way, um, but this game is so different and in such a subtle way, like the new skill set takes little time to internalize 
It certainly led me to some friction and some frustration that I was not expecting. And I think that that's been the same for several players. I've heard from various people who have been both overjoyed by this game and the variety and creativity that it offers. Certain kind of gamers, sandboxy gamers, mischievous gamers who love to play and break um, are loving this. Um, other gamers that are perhaps more traditional, that like um, to know what they are doing, or just the, the open sense of freedom that Breath of the Wild gave you, simple mechanics of climbing and gliding and so forth. Perhaps it can be a little dizzying at first, realizing that there is a new vocabulary that you have to learn that is not what you're used to. So I think that I can understand both sides of that coin. I can understand people who immediately think this is a whole new world of Zelda, a whole new world of Nintendo gaming. And I can also understand people that feel a little left behind and perhaps struggle to hold on to all of these new things that are coming at you pretty thick and fast. So I get both sides of that. I certainly suffered a bit of turbulence on my way into this game after that opening plateau. What came next uh, shocked me a little. I was a little taken aback to be so frustrated and to just not know what to do in some places and to, to have to walk out of a shrine without completing it to just... It's like when you don't know the answer to a crossword and you've stared at it for too long. Um, all it took was a step back um, and a realisation that these new mechanics uh, have led to new solutions, basically. And once you have realized that and you've started to think in terms of your new abilities, I think the game really starts to open up and you start to feel and see the potential that it has. After that initial opening area, you do the famous scene that we've seen in so many trailers where Link skydives down to Hyrule and you land down in Hyrule Field and it feels very familiar. You look around and I think after the, the wonder of the Sky Islands and the difference and the newness of it, um, I looked around and I was like, ah, I'm back in Breath of the Wild. This feels comfortable. This feels like slipping on comfortable slippers. But I am going to touch on a few of the quest lines that are presented to you here, a few of the different activities that fill this open world that are different to Breath of the Wild. So again, I'm going to drop a small spoiler warning here, um, just in case you are playing the game and you have not yet spread your wings down here in the open world, um, found out the different uh, characters that you're going to meet or re-meet and the things that they ask you to do as you are traveling through Hyrule. That's what this section of the podcast is going to be. So when you get down here, you are directed or find your way to a place called Lookout Landing. This is a settlement. There has been an emergency in Hyrule. You're reconnecting with the world. Um, you've been up in the clouds. You've been up there with Raru. You've been uh, getting your powers. You've been starting to understand what has happened to Link. And now Link has touched back down in Hyrule, where the gloom has caused a catastrophe, where that cataclysm under Hyrule Castle has pushed the castle up into the air and it's surrounded by gloom. Gloom is pouring out of the ground in various different spots of Hyrule that you are directed to go and investigate. Um, you will meet the Hyrule Reconstruction Force who are out there just trying to figure it out. So there's collections of soldiers and archaeologists and experts in ancient Hyrulean and Zonai stuff that are all out there and you will meet them as you travel around. They too are trying to unravel the mystery of what has happened. 
and Link is now this like freelancer um, looking for Zelda, trying to find out what the cataclysm is. Um, and as you move around the world, you will be investigating. You will be going down into the ground and back up into the sky through the, the map towers that we know from Breath of the Wild to explore the highs and the lows of Hyrule. Um, and I really like the, the verticality that has been given to Hyrule. We have the familiar Hyrule, the green fields and the barren plains and the sandy beaches that we love. But we now also have different levels to Hyrule. We have those sky islands and we have an underground. So the game has been uh, drawn out in scope and size in a really interesting way. And I'm going to talk about a couple of them now. I'm going to talk to you about the quest lines that you get from Robbie, the little scientist guy who we met in Breath of the Wild over at Hatano Village Lab. And I'm going to talk about the quest that you get from Impa, the, um, the old senpai lady from Kakariko Village. So if you've not yet found those, that's what, that's what this is going to be. Um, so Robbie, the scientist, is investigating the chasms that have opened up with gloom spilling out of them. These are big holes that have opened up in different parts of Hyrule. Um, and qu pretty quickly after landfall, you're invited to come down with him to descend into one of those and to find out what lies beneath. And this is a very interesting part of the game. It turns out that there is um, a large cave under Hyrule, a cavern system. Um, it's dark, it's scary. The music is weird, um, and as you uh, skydive down into this this yawning chasm that lies beneath Hyrule, you're stuck in darkness, and you can attach things to arrows in this game. So you can attach these little light buds that you'll find around, a new collectible. If you attach one to an arrow and fire it into the darkness, the yawning darkness, you can see it arcing through the darkness. When it hits something, it will light up that area. I'm not going to talk too much about what is down here and what I have found, but this is an absolutely wonderful new dimension to the game. It's darker than anything that we've seen in Breath of the Wild. It's deep below that luminous overworld, that natural paradise that lies above. It's an inky blackness that is full of mystery. Um, and I think this is perhaps something that I'm going to come to later in my playthrough. I've spent a little time down here. It's full of gloom, it's hard to traverse, it feels lonely and cold and very, very different. It's a whole new dimension that this game has brought. And when we meet Impa, she is doing something else. She is investigating these large land artworks that have appeared. You meet her near Lookout Landing as well. I think if you've played the opening section, you will have met her. Um, and she encourages you to go up above the land in a balloon um, and from above to try and view these hieroglyphs from high in the sky to see these pictures that from the land look like strange stripes curling around the landscape over hills. They're really, really big. Uh, but from above, you can see a picture and um, there is a puzzle involved in finding out what that picture is. And it becomes apparent that these hieroglyphs, these land art hieroglyphs are scattered around and they're going to be one of the new open world activities that you're doing that utilizes the new um, overhead bird's eye view that you're going to have over Hyrule. I absolutely love both of these. I think the the way that the, the sky and the depths have been used to broaden out the verticality of this world, the darkness and the golden light of the sky islands is just absolutely wonderful. I'm not going to go too far into those things now. I think I'm reaching the limit of what I feel like is good to talk about for people. Um, people are at different stages of playing this game. And I think across the next weeks, this podcast is going to 
kind of chart the trajectory of what an average player, or I guess not that average, a player who is playing an awful lot of Tears of the Kingdom, where they might have gotten to. Um, so I think in the next episodes, I will go further in talking about those things and bring on guests to talk about them too. But that's pretty much where I'm up to with Breath of the Wild. I mean, uh, Tears of the Kingdom so far. And I think there are a couple more things to mention. Um, I will mention that there is a guy that you will meet around the map called Addison, who is repping for uh, President Hudson of the Hudson Construction Company, someone you might remember from Breath of the Wild. You will meet him all around the landscape, and he is steadfastly knocking these signs up for President Hudson, but they are big and bulky. Um, he's holding the stand of a, a sign. The signs, every time you meet him around the landscape, are different shapes and sizes. They have different weight. Um, and he asks you to prop up the sign for him so that he can hammer it in. And so you have to find things that are lying around and find a way to prop up these awkward, physics-y, weighty signs. Um, and you can tell him to let go. If your construction holds, like if you've managed to jam enough wood and rocks around them and glue together some kind of stand that can hold up these ridiculous signs, then he will thank you and reward you. And everywhere you go, you get these mini physics puzzles with this adorable Addison guy. And I've really enjoyed that part of the game too. Um, Koroks are also back. Really happy to find Koroks back again. Um, there is a new variety of Korok who is a little guy with a backpack who has lost his friend. And if you find him in the landscape, the Korok will say, I need to get back to my friend. What this means is that you will get a series of small traversal puzzles. We have to take him a couple hundred meters to his buddy. Um, but the best way to do this is to build vehicles or to build gliders or to build wheeled things or to glue him onto something and just get him there. And it's a kind of a comedy exercise trying to get this cute little heavy Korok to his friend every time. You will end up bumping him around and hearing his adorable little oofs and owls. And it breaks my heart every time that I give one a bumpy ride. I try and give them like a golden taxi ride. I really try and take care of these little Koroks. Um, people out there in the gamer internet have been having a lot of fun with these guys. Uh, you may have seen it. They have been doing all sorts of horrible things to them. Um, but for me personally, I love the Koroks. I love that there is a new variety of Korok in addition to finding them in places where you spot patterns in nature and arranging boulders and climbing trees and um, mysterious looking stumps that have something inside of them and target practice, kind of all of the classic Korok things from Breath of the Wild. We now have a new way to collect Koroks that's really cute as well. So there are loads of activities to do in this open world that feel at once familiar and fresh. It's the Hyrule that we know and love, but it's also a brand new Hyrule to explore. And I'm going to leave my opening thoughts about Tears of the Kingdom here for this episode. I think that's almost an hour-long solo episode. If you have managed to get through this, this long and rambling description of my opening hours of Tears of the Kingdom, then thank you for sticking with me. Um, I will be doing more episodes about this game. I have more that I wanted to talk about, like... The, the experience that I had at Rito Village, which was absolutely divine section of gameplay. 
Um, all of the corners of the map have different things to do. We'll meet familiar characters and we'll meet um, familiar locations. We'll revisit familiar locations that are um, both the, the places that we have been, but cast in different weather and different circumstances. So it's been a real pleasure just going around the map and, and rediscovering this world that I love so much. Um, I hope that you've enjoyed the podcast. I hope that I've managed to avoid spoilers and to not spoil anything for you. Um, thanks very much for coming with me on this journey. There is a long way still to go. So that is just my first impressions of the opening 15 or 20 hours or so of the absolutely divine The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. What a game. What a game this is. I'm completely blown away by Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. I've had my teething troubles with it. I've touched on them here. Um, I did have a little bit of shock when I first started playing the game. It was perhaps a little more difficult than I'd remembered and I'd struggled to um, untangle my, my pure instincts that have been born of just playing so much Breath of the Wild that I just internalized the climbing and the gliding as being the main ways to get around. And I had found myself stumped and a little feeling a little lost at first. Um, in the Discord, I was expressing like a little bit of sadness about, <laughs> I don't know, I'm kind of emotionally tied up with these games somehow. They mean an awful lot to me. And so not enjoying it quite as much as I wanted to for an hour or two there kind of threw me off kilter a little bit. I was like, who am I? Who have I become? I'm not enjoying this that much. But uh, that opening section in the Sky Islands is absolutely divine. Um, and then when you're cast into the open world, there's a lot down there. There's a lot to learn in this game. Thinking about the new abilities, uh, meeting the new characters and getting your feet on the ground. But once it starts to broaden out and once you start to understand the, the Zonai tools and all of the things that are going on in the game, there really is a lot to love about it. And um, after that Rito passage of play that I will discuss next episode, I hope, um, I really started to feel it again. And I'm, I'm back in the game now. I'm fully back in Tears of the Kingdom and I couldn't be happier about the way that it's turned out. Um, I think I'll be talking about this game again next week. It's probably all that I'm going to play. If you're playing Tears of the Kingdom, please do come and tell me about your experience. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Gaming in the Wild and Instagram, Facebook, YouTube and elsewhere. You can also come and join that patron Discord where there is a very lively conversation going on about this game. We're being very, very considerate. We're spoiler tagging things. We are talking about what kind of... Uh, what kind of secrets lie beneath the spoiler tag so nobody opens up anything they don't want to know by accident. Um, you're welcome to come and join the Discord. To do so, become a patron at patreon.com slash gaminginthewild. Um, support the show for as little as a dollar a month and come and join the Discord um, and tell us about your experience too. Um, it's always fun when new people join. There have been a few lately, so thanks very much to Julia and Simon for joining the, uh, the Patreon and the Discord. Lots more Tears of the Kingdom to come, so if you've enjoyed this episode, then come back next week for more, hopefully with a guest. So enjoy Tears of the Kingdom, take care of yourselves and each other, and bye-bye for now. <laughs>